Philippians chapter 1. Let's start reading in verse 1. The Bible says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For this is my record, how greatly I long after you, all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, now as we study it, Lord, I pray it will be a help for us and that we will bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I was looking at some of my notes from when we preached through the book of Philippians, and I couldn't believe it. It's 12 years ago. So how many of you have started coming to Grace Baptist Church sooner than 12 years ago? So since 12 years ago, you started coming. Hold your hands up higher so I can see. Everybody look around. So, thank you. You can put them down. So, it's so interesting to me, some of the work that we've done to establish who we are at Grace Baptist Church, and so I'll make references. You remember from our Philippians study. You remember from our Thessalonians study. And those of you who are really old, you could say, who you remember from our Ecclesiastes study. Here, let me take a little parenthesis. When I first became pastor here at Grace Baptist, um, my, I had a teacher in college that would speak from Ecclesiastes. His name was Keith Kaiser. And I really enjoyed it. And then when I was an assistant pastor in Oklahoma, I heard a pastor named Dave Hardy. He preached a message from Ecclesiastes that really spoke to me. And, so, and I knew I wanted to preach through a book of the Bible when I became pastor here. So I chose the book of Ecclesiastes to be the first book that I ever preached through. And what that demonstrated is what an idiot... I am. That is one of the hardest books in the Bible. And we started there. And I have intentionally not looked at those notes nor listened to those sermons because I promised there was great heresy preached through that first series that I did all those years ago. And so please do not go back and find those sermons. But here's the, this, this passage. The reason that I wanted to come here today, it's a continuation of last Sunday. We started the year looking at Paul's prayer or God's prayer for us. This is another one of Paul's prayers that, that God, the Holy Spirit, inspired to be written down that we can look at. And it's going to help to define our thinking and help us to, to go into this new year. And man, it's good to see you all here today through the, the slipperiness and through the snow. And actually, the auditorium filled up pretty well. So praise the Lord for that. Now... What we learned when we did our Philippians study, uh, John MacArthur had made this statement, joy is the deep and abiding assurance that regardless of one's circumstances in life, all is well between the believer and the Lord. All right? So joy 
is that deep and abiding assurance that regardless of one's circumstances in life, all is well between the believer and the Lord. So I would ask you today, is all well between you and the Lord? I would ask you this as well. How's your joy? How's your joy? It'd be so funny if some of you are answering out loud right now. It'd be, I'm fine. (laughs) Others, I've not thought about it. I've not really thought about it. And others of you, you really are experiencing the joy and fullness of what it means to be a child of God. Now, here's the deal. God wants us to be joyful, and that is the theme of the book of Philippians. It's how to have joy through the mind of Christ. Your joy comes from your thinking. Your joy comes from your thinking. Much of the disappointment in our lives comes from unfulfilled expectations. Is that right? And I promise, what, I promise you this, that if your expectations are God's expectations for you, you will never be disappointed. If my, if my uh, ambition, if what I hope for is the same as what God wants for me, then I won't be disappointed. If my desire is something other than what God wants for me, then I will be disappointed. Does that make sense? And so joy is that deep and abiding assurance that regardless of one's circumstances in life, all is well between the believer and his Lord. So how do we get that joy? By having the mind of Christ. So now let's look at this passage in Philippians and let's try to get an understanding of how the mind of Christ produces joy. How does the mind of Christ produce joy? Well, in the absence of the mind of Christ, there can be no genuine joy. In the absence of the mind of Christ, there can be no genuine joy. I'm talking about the kind of joy that shines like a beacon in times of trouble, where when, when genuine trouble comes into your life, you know that there's hope, you know that there's some place to go. There's a rock to which you can cling. That kind of joy, that kind of hope. And what genuine joy does is it produces some things in our lives, and we have them here in our text. The first thing that joy produces, and they're symptoms, symptoms of joy. Now, how many of you know what the symptoms of bitterness are? All right, One of them, it looks like you've been sucking on dill persimmons. Just sour face, right? There's symptoms of bitterness. Another symptom of bitterness is that trouble springs up, right? And you're defiled by it and other people around you. Bitterness, it just ruins everything. We're at the opposite opposite of that today. We're looking at what genuine biblical joy through the mind of Christ produces in the life of the believer. The first thing that it produces is thankfulness in remembering. Look at verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. I think that our busyness is a hindrance to godly reflection. Would you all agree with that? Our busyness is a hindrance to godly reflection. Um, You know, I've had some downtime and... I've just been thinking about the last 19 years at Grace Baptist Church, and honestly, all that has happened, and all of the people that have been such a blessing here, and the things that you all have done for my family, for me, for this work, for this ministry. I mentioned in the Sunday School Hour, I love seeing the young people out shoveling this morning. That was cool. I liked seeing that. You know, when we first came here, Wade and Stacy were the young couple. (laughs) 
I didn't say immature. I said young. Um, they, they were the young couple, and Jeff and Sue might have been next youngest couple. There, there was not very many young people. And as far as teenagers, it was Nathan and some of the Blackford kids and just a few other young people, not really very many. And now Nathan, he's probably got 50 young people that he works with. They don't all come at the same time, you know. But it's just an amazing thing to see what God's doing at Grace Baptist Church over all of these years. It's really wonderful. And I can say this. I look back at you all, and I remember you, and it causes me to thank my Lord. Here's the problem, though. Sometimes I look back at people and I think, man, that guy was a jerk. Man, she drove me crazy. Now, be honest. How many of you would say the same thing? You look back over time, right? And what is that? That is a lack of biblical joy. See, we're supposed to remember and think on those things that are good. And so genuine joy, what that helps me do, that's supposed to help me overlook things that have hurt me in the past or offenses that I have taken. Now, remember, I'm not supposed to take any offenses. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. I'm not supposed to be able to be offended. That's the life that we're supposed to live. How many of you know people that are easily offended? You have to be very careful what you say to them. Man, I really like that type. Oh, you didn't like that one last week? But people that are really easily offended. When you know people like that, you, you, you're just, I don't know what to say. You, um, hi? <laughs> you don't have any idea what to say. Because people are easily offended. We don't want to be like that. And so what happens when I have the joy of the Lord in my life, I can look back at what has happened in my life and show that God has been there and I can thank God for Him. I can thank God for those people. It's really important that I get that. You know, some of the most difficult people in my life have helped me to become a better Christian. How many of you would agree with that? You know what I'm talking about? Because, listen, we are going to be dealing with fallen people until the Lord comes back. We need to have the joy of the Lord to be able to do it properly. Thankfulness in remembering. Are you thankful for your past? Well, you might not be thankful for your past mistakes, but you can be thankful for your past forgiveness. Amen. I might not be thankful for what I did, but I sure am thankful for the grace of God in allowing me to continue in ministry. God is so good to us. So genuine joy produces thankfulness and remembrance. But then look at what it produces. Look at verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. So what, is, what does the mind of Christ and joyfulness do? It produces prayer with joy. Prayer with joy. Isn't it wonderful when you can spend some time with the Lord and the prayer requests that you have are joyful? How many of you ever feel like when you're praying, you're trying to fix the world? Good luck, right? God is going to fix it, but there's going to be an awful lot of judgment and destruction that's going to have to take place. And we're going to look at some of that, how we are to pray for people. But what, what the mind of Christ gives me and a joyful spirit is that joy comes out in my prayer. And so I would ask you this, when you pray, when you pray, when you spend, and I hope that you do, Spend time with the Lord praying for yourself, for your family, for your nation, for your church, for the people that you work with. So many prayer requests that we need to have for the people around us. Is there joy in that? And I like the way that he says it in verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. Now I want you to think about that, always. 
The Apostle Paul must have been an amazing Christian. Seriously. He must have been an amazing Christian because the Holy Spirit allowed him to write that down. Man, I can't say that. How many of you would say, you'd be honest right now, and say, man, I, I would not be able to write that down through the Holy Spirit. I might be able to write it down, but it wouldn't be true. How many of you would say, I, I couldn't write that down? Would you raise your hands? You could say that. Do you see why we need the mind of Christ? I'm so glad, thank you, that I'm not alone. We need the mind of Christ desperately. All right, so genuine joy produces thankfulness and remembering. It produces prayer with joy. And then it produces confidence in God's objectives. It produces confidence in God's objectives. Look at verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Are you confident that what God is doing in your life is good? Are you confident? Now, how many of you are glad that Jesus Christ has saved you and you can never lose it? That, what wonderful joy, what wonderful confidence there is. Because I promise you, I am not good enough to keep my salvation. How many of you know people that believe that they can lose their salvation? You know people that are like that. I don't know if there's a more arrogant position in the world than that. As if I can be good enough to keep my salvation. Or that there are certain sins that would cause me to lose my salvation and others that wouldn't. Right? Now let me say this. I'm not saying that the people who hold that position are arrogant. I don't think they are. I think that, they, that their intention is humility. Would you all agree with that? I think their intention is humility, but it's just completely unbiblical. For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, that's Jesus Christ, and am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I've committed. Is that right? Until that day. Jesus Christ is going to keep it. And that's so good because I can't. So now that I, I have complete confidence in His eternal salvation. Does eternal mean eternal, or does eternal mean until I sin bad enough that I lose it? That doesn't go together, does it? No, no. My, my salvation is eternal. It's eternal. For God so loved the world, this is a really obscure verse, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting, everlasting life. Aren't you glad that everlasting lasts longer than an everlasting battery? Now, I'm really glad that everlasting salvation lasts longer than that battery. And I promise you this, that my salvation will last longer than my commitment to Christ. He keeps it. I don't. He keeps it. I don't. So those of us... Now, how many of you agree with what I just said? You agree with that, that your salvation is forever. So not only are we to be confident in our salvation... We're to be confident in what God is doing in our lives. Because the Bible says, look at verse 6 again, very famous verse, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you something? Christ-likeness can be painful. Be Listen, you can never become what you need to be by remaining what you are. Is that right? Unless you're perfect. 
You can never become what you need to be by remaining what you are. And that change from who I am to who he is making me to be is drastic. And it can be painful. Look at how much power it takes. Go to Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 20. For our conversation is in heaven. Now that conversation, that's, that's our life. That's our interaction with the world. Our conversation is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body. Do you see that? Our vile body. Now, what does that do to your self-esteem? It's interesting, isn't it? This idea that I'm good is out of the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that doeth good. There's none that seeketh after God. Is that what the Bible says? Is that clear? Any righteousness that I have is a foreign righteousness. All of my righteousnesses are as filthy rags, the Bible says. The best that I have is filthy rags. Any righteousness that I have is a foreign righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. What a blessing that is. Isn't that good? But look at what the Bible says here, verse 20 again. Who shall change, that's Jesus, our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body. And look at how much power it takes. According to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. Here's how much power it takes to make my body into that of one like Jesus Christ. The amount of power it would take to subdue everything in the world. All that is in the world, the Bible says. All that is in the world. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. All that is in the world is evil. That's how much power it's going to take to change me. That's why being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, it is important that we understand that he is doing it and some of that change will not be comfortable. It will be painful. And that's why if you are looking for a comfortable religion... Become a Buddhist. You know, do something else. Because the, the faith that is of Jesus Christ, as He changes us, we don't want to change. We just hold on. I haven't told this in years, but when Jacob was, I don't know, two or three or whatever, I told him to get in his high chair. And so he started climbing in his high chair, and I didn't realize the tray was there. And so I'm watching him climb up, and he hit his head on the tray. And he said, I can't do it. So I looked at an opportunity to have some fun. And I said, I said, get in your high chair. So he tried to climb in. He's, I can't do it, Jacob. Get in your high chair. This is called provoking your children to wrath. This is, this is what this is. And I still remember him. His face is all red. And he said, I can't do it. I said, okay, I'll help you. But I think what happens in our life, now you understand, you know, why I'm raising him to be an axe murderer. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think what happens in our lives is we get to the point where we say, God, I know you want this from me, but I can't do it. And then God says, exactly. Exactly. My strength is made perfect in weakness, he says. And I'm glad that he is going to perform it, but that won't always be comfortable. Then, the other thing that joy does, genuine joy, it produces thankfulness and remembering. It produces prayer with joy. It produces confidence in God's objectives. 
And then it produces consistency in thinking. Consistency in thinking. Go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 7. Even as it is meet, acceptable, for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. Consistency of thinking. Consistency of thinking. Look, look at what he says. When I'm in trouble, when I'm in my bonds, and when I am defending and in confirmation of the gospel, these other believers around him, the body of Christ, it helped him because we all have the same mind, the mind of Christ. I got to tell you, there is nothing better than when God's people dwell in unity. The Bible says that. It's just a wonderful thing when God's people dwell in unity. Look at, uh, keep your place here in Philippians. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Church of Corinth was a mess, wasn't it? Everybody had an idea of how things were supposed to be done. And so the Apostle Paul writes to correct some of that. 1 Corinthians 1, look at verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. How are we going to speak the same thing? We've got to be speaking from the same Bible. Yeah, it's just God's Word. What are we going to do about this? Well, the Bible says this, so this is what we're going to do. The same mind and in the same judgment. Go back to Philippians. It's an interesting passage. Look at chapter 4. Consistency in thinking. Philippians 4, look at verse 1. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Iodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Then these two ladies, apparently, they were not of the same mind in the Lord. They were bumping heads. Can you imagine some of you ladies who you, you might be arguing with another lady in the church over something? Can you imagine if God wrote that down and that's been in the Bible for 2,000 years? Yodius <laughs> and Syntyche, don't be like them. Be of the same mind in the Lord. Then look at what it says in verse 3. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. What was their problem? They didn't have the same mind. Why? Because they didn't have the joy of the Lord. If we have the joy of the Lord, we're going to have the same mind. There's going to be consistency in thinking. Whether it's the Apostle Paul laboring and disputing with, uh, with the, the, the forces of the world or those in that local church. They had the same mind. What is the mind of Christ? It is unity of thought and purpose and humility of spirit. That's what the mind of Christ is. Look at chapter 1. Verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, I've preached this since 12 years ago or however long it was that I studied this text. Uh, I preached this text at funerals often. And to, what happened was for me... The way that I always understood that verse... Now, those of you like me who grew up in church, you've been around it all your lives, you know Scripture verses that you never memorized. You just heard them a lot. You know what I'm talking about? This was one of those for me. 
And the way that I heard it, the way that I knew it, I thought it said, for to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's not what it says, is it? What's it say? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If for you to live is anything other than Christ, then to die is loss. Amen? If for you to live is family, then death is loss. If for you to live is your career, then death is loss. If for you to live is the church, then death is loss. But if for you to live is Christ, then to die is gain because you're going to go and be with Him. Wouldn't it be better if we made Him our life now? Then what would that do? That would make me a better dad. That would make me a better employee or employer. That would make me a better church member. That's where it has to start. What is that? That's getting my, my thinking right. That's establishing certain priorities in my life. Then it says this, verse 22, But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Would you all agree with that? It's just better to be with Jesus. Then look at what he says. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. So what did Paul say? Man, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. Later on, he says, the time, is at hand. the time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the righteous judge shall give me that day. And not to me only, but to all those that love his appearing. He was able to say that in Second uh, Timothy. But he wanted to go a long time before. He was tired of this world. But Paul said, it's better that I stay for you. What is this? This is unity of thought. It's consistency of thought. He had a reason to be here. Look at what it says in verse 25. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. So what is he saying? Here's, this is, so if I were Paul, this is what I'm saying. Your joy is more important to me than my joy. Why is he saying that? Here's Paul speaking. My greatest joy would to leave this, be, to leave this world and to be with Christ. That would be my greatest joy. But it's better for you that I stay and confirm your joy. That I help you to understand who Christ is and how to have the mind of Christ so that you can experience genuine joy in this world. That's what the Apostle Paul was saying. In other words, his life was not important to him. The lives of the people that he was ministering to were important to him. What a blessing. That's the kind of consistency in thinking that God wants us to have. In other words, it's not about me. The ministry is not about me. You know, the, the church at Laodicea, the Laodicea means rights of the people. It was all about the people. Y'all remember that skit that we showed at uh, kickoff a couple of years ago? It was Me Church. You know, and it's this, this uh, narrator. He's asking people to come to church. And he says, can I, can I have a pony? Sure, we'll get you a pony. Can you change my oil while I'm there? Sure, we'll provide that for you. Why? Because it's all about me. It's all about me. No. No. To quote that great theologian, John F. Kennedy, ask not what your church can do for you, but what you can do for your church. <laughs> Terrible to quote a whoremonger like that in a, in a sermon. 
It's really important that we get this. It's vital that we get this. My life is not about me. It's about Him. And when I get my life in that place, then I can experience true joy. Because that joy produces in me thankfulness and remembering, prayer with joy, confidence in God's objectives, and then consistency in thinking. And then the next thing that that this joy does, that it produces in my life, a passion for God's people. A passion for God's people. Look at verse 8. For God is my record. How greatly I long after you, or how, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Now, can you imagine, young people, Luke, there's a girl, and you think she's all that in a bag of chips. And so you're going to write her a letter, and you say, I long after you in my bowels. <laughs> you're going to be single for a long time. You're so beautiful, you make my bowels move. We don't use that word quite that way anymore, do we? That just depends, right, Luke? That just, well, depends. depends. Um, in the Bible, when it's talking, that's the, that's the deepest seat of your emotions. The, the, the seat, in, in the, your deepest place of emotion. That's what Paul was saying. And God is his witness and has him write this down, how he just loved the people of the church at Philippi. Why? Biblical joy. Having the mind of Christ that produces joy. That, what that does in my life is it produces a longing and a love for God's people. Do you know that that's when a church grows? Jesus Christ said, "You'll know that they will know you're my disciples by your love one for another. Just, just love, not suspicion, not paranoia, not you know trying to dress a certain way so that they, they, that I am impressive, or the flip side of it is dressing a certain way to be an offense. It's just that I want to just love God and I love God's people and I don't think about myself. You know that's the definition of meekness." Biblical meekness is, I just don't matter in this equation, you do. What I want, what I desire is not important. It's what you want and desire. The mind of Christ produces joy. And joy produces thankfulness and remembering, prayer with joy, confidence in God's objectives, consistency in thinking, and passion for God's people. But genuine joy produces something else. All right, so what we've seen in the text, the mind of Christ produces joy, but that genuine joy, it produces prayer. Prayer, but a specific kind of prayer. I cannot be critical and pray joyfully at the same time. Well, it's not God. <laughs> I just hate that guy. <laughs> right? It's it just everything changes when we have the mind of Christ. I cannot be critical and pray joyfully at the same time. Now, listen, I understand. I do have the spiritual gift of criticism. That's called being a perfectionist. Do we have any other perfectionists here? And, and I'll tell you what the recipe for frustration is. I'm a perfectionist with ADD. So that combination, you know, it's just insane. But listen, seriously, for myself, I can't be critical and joyful at the same time. I can't be critical and thankful at the same time. I can't do it. 
And so that's where I need to have the mind of Christ. Then, I cannot be selfish and pray joyfully at the same time. I cannot be selfish and pray joyfully at the same time. If your prayer life is all about you, then you don't have the mind of Christ. And of course, chapter 2 and verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The mind of Christ can't be all about me. Now, God wants you and me, He wants us to take our genuine heartfelt needs and requests to Him. Do you all agree with that? I'm so thankful that I can take my needs to Him. But if my prayer life is all about me, then I am certainly not matching what the the joy of the Lord produces here in Philippians chapter 1. So I cannot be selfish and pray joyfully at the same time. And then I just mentioned it a minute ago. I cannot be ungrateful and pray joyfully at the same time. I, I think that there's probably an epidemic in Western civilization of unthankfulness. Because we have more than anyone and yet we never have enough. Is that true? We have more than anyone and yet we never have enough. And so that's where we need to be thankful. And I cannot be ungrateful and pray joyfully at the same time. So what we've said is that the mind of Christ produces joy and then genuine joy produces prayer. We saw that here in the text. But then thirdly, biblical prayer must be informed by biblical principles. So are you praying, when you pray for someone, are you praying what God wants for them or what you want for them? Which, would, which way would be better? Praying what God wants for them. Is that right? So biblical prayer must be informed by biblical principles. Love is the first of all characteristics displayed by a believer. Okay, so let's just run some verses real quick. Go, keep your place in Philippians. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. And can I tell you something? Once you get to Ephesians chapter 1, look up here. We're going to be at verse 15. You don't have any idea what's going on in the houses of the people that are sitting around you. There are people that you think everything is great in their lives and you have no idea the hurt and struggle and pain that that, that they are experiencing. Not because they're bad people, because that is where they are in their lives right now. That's where we got to really be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ. People that are sitting on the same row as you. You have no idea what they're going through. But look at this. this the first thing that, that God produces in the believer's life is love. So we're at Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Love, it's just produced. That's the first demonstration of those believers at Ephesus. Look at 1 John chapter 3. First John 3, look at verse 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. So one of the birthmarks of the Christian, when I was at Stillwater, Dave McCracken preached a series on First John called The Birthmarks of a Christian. One of the birthmarks of a Christian, one of the ways that you know that you're saved, is that you love God's people. You love God's people. Um, Amanda Holesclaw, where are you at? Amanda, right back there. She mentioned Sunday school, I think it was last week how she was at Kohl's and started talking with the girl that was the cashier. And they, they found out that they're both believers and they ended up with this 20-minute conversation and their hearts were knit together 
because of Jesus Christ. That's the love for the brethren. Now, the people in line behind her hated the brethren at that particular moment. But, but they just, that's what love does. That's what salvation does. It produces love in you. And I'll tell you this, how many of you are saved? You know for sure that Jesus Christ is your Savior. If your love for the brethren is less than it was, that's not God's fault, right? He gave you that capacity to love. Um, the Bible says in, look at 1 John 4, look at verse 19. We love Him because He first loved us. We have the capacity to love because God loved us. And so in my prayer, the reason that I pray more is because I love more. When you are more concerned, your kids go off to school. Okay, Laura and I are, are experiencing that now. Well, we pray. I, I don't know about Laura. She's a better prayer warrior than I am. I've prayed more for Lydia as she has left home because somehow I feel like I'm in control when they're there. It's crazy, right? Isn't that insane? But love, what, what love does is it causes you to pray. Um, Galatians 5.22 says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love. The first thing that the Spirit produces in the believer is love, and that affects the way that they pray. We're still in 1 John 4. Look at verse 7. Brethren, or, or beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Now, I'll tell you this. How many of you recognize that the world's understanding of love is different than the biblical understanding of love? Right? Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my words. It's, it's very interesting. God's love, it does things to us. So if I love these young people, I'm going to pray for them, I'm going to invest in them, and I'm going to warn them. Love isn't letting them have whatever they want. Right? I mean, the kids would live on Fruit Loops. Now, then they turn into a Fruit Loop. All right, now. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says this, And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. What is charity? Love that gives. It's love that manifests itself in giving. And that is giving of yourself, investment. It's, the, it's what God's love does in the life of the church. So biblical prayer must be informed by biblical principles, and love is the first of the characteristics displayed by the believer. Then... Love, this is so important. Love is not the goal in and of itself. If that's the case, we can get out of balance. Biblical love is informed by the mind of Christ. It's knowledge. Go back to uh, Philippians. Look at verse chapter 1, verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more. And then what does it say? In knowledge. Let's everybody get there. Philippians 1, look at verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more. What's it say? In knowledge and in all judgment. Judge not lest you be judged. What? No, that's talking about judging inappropriately. I'm supposed to love in knowledge and in judgment. And so if I love Lydia, I'm going to love her according to the mind of Christ and the knowledge of the Word of God, which will give me judgment as to how to direct her life in this world. I, I, I father her, I parent her differently now at 18 than I did when she was 3. Right? 
It's so important that we get that, and that's biblical knowledge, biblical wisdom, biblical judgment, biblical discernment. If I just say I love her and give her whatever she wants, let her do whatever she wants, that's not biblical love. Now, let me say this. Because she was raised in a Christian home and has a desire to serve the Lord, what she wants is very much what God wants. And so that makes parenting easier. And yet, at 18, you can't have the discernment that you do at 52. And so I try and be her dad to give her... Uh, uh, instruction according to biblical knowledge and biblical judgment. That's how I demonstrate my love for her. Biblical love is informed by the mind of Christ, and that is knowledge. Proverbs 1, seven: the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. If I'm going to love her properly, it has to be through the Holy Spirit. Then, Biblical love is informed by the mind of Christ, and that's judgment. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Knowledge and judgment. 1 Corinthians 2, look at verse 14. But the natural man, now that is the lost man. That's the person that doesn't have the Spirit of God in them. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now, how many of you are saved and you have family members who just think you're absolutely crazy? They don't understand what you're doing. They don't get it, right? Natural man can't understand these things. Verse 15, But he that is spiritual judgeth all things. Yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So what does the mind of Christ do? It gives you love, and it gives you knowledge, and it gives you judgment to where we, we can properly discern things. And what does that allow us to do? It allows us to pray properly. The more you know about God, the more you know about His Word, the, know you, the more you know about biblical love, knowledge, and judgment, then you know how to pray for people. See, that's what godly love does. Um, so, let's look. Let's just finish up with this. A synopsis of joyful prayer. What does it look like? The principle. The mind of Christ produces joy. Joy produces love. Love produces biblically informed prayer. All right? And so what happens is love changes the way that you behave. Knowledge changes the way that you behave. A simple example is this, and I wrote this down years ago. Um, Love is informed by knowledge. So Laura would say, Jim doesn't like lasagna hate lasagna. What happened was I ate it one time. Somebody made it with cottage cheese. Now, if you like lasagna with cottage cheese, you really need to question your salvation. No, I'm just... <laughs> so, Laura knows Jim doesn't like lasagna, and so loving knowledge changes behavior. She makes something else. You know what lasagna I like is that Stouffer's frozen lasagna. I like that. Do you know why? It's not real lasagna. I don't like lasagna. And so what happens is Laura knows that, so that changes the way that she cooks. Right? And we've, we all know any dinner that has cornflakes on it is sinful. <laughs> Casseroles. Right? It's like a bowl full of pus. It's just horrible, horrible, horrible. I think I've gotten off topic. But what happens is Laura loves me. She knows what I like. And so when I go on a, a trip preaching somewhere, she makes casseroles for the kids. It's just sinful. 
And so what happens is her love for me affects her knowledge of me. She cares about what I like and don't like. And then that changes her behavior. So the, the way that this works is my love for God causes me to increase my knowledge of Him. And that knowledge of Him changes my behavior and my choices and my actions. Does that make sense? That's what we're supposed to do. Lydia hates bananas. So two years old or however old we were, she was when we were giving her baby food. Who doesn't like Gerber bananas? She just would, she hated it. I guess Mackenzie's the same way, right? Just, and even to this day, she still hates bananas. And so we don't try to feed her bananas. It just changes things, right? Knowledge, knowledge. Um, so the application. The principle is mind of Christ produces joy. Joy produces love. Love produces biblically informed prayer. That's illustrated by when, because Laura loves me, she knows what I like and she makes something else. Because I love God, I learn more about Him and that changes my behavior. So how does this affect the way that I pray? Well, I pray joyfully, not critically, selfishly, or unthankfully. And then I pray biblically. All right, so here's an example. So I'm praying for Dan New. One way that I could pray for him would you see, I pray that I pray that Dan does well at work. Well, that's a human goal, right? And I do want him to do a good job at work, but I want his life to be much better than his job. Amen. So the way that I would pray for him, I pray that God's Spirit accomplishes what God's desires are for him in his life. And we learned some of those last week from the book of Colossians. So go with me to the book of Colossians real quickly. So if I was going to pray for Dan, I don't just pray that he does well at work. Here's what I'd pray. Verse 9, chapter Colossians 1, look at verse 10. Or verse 9. <laughs> For this cause we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So how would I pray for Dan? Lord, I pray that Dan really does have a knowledge of your will, that he knows you. You see, that, you see how that's a different prayer? Lord, give him wisdom. Give him spiritual understanding. Then look at verse 10. Lord, help him to walk worthy of you. Help him to please you. Help him be fruitful in every good work. Help, help him to be increasing in the knowledge of you. Lord, strengthen him with all might according to your glorious power. Lord, help him to have patience and long-suffering and joyfulness. Lord, help him to be thankful to, to the Father that he's a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light. Do you see how the prayer is all of a sudden different? What am I doing? I'm praying a supernatural prayer for him. I'm praying a supernatural prayer for him. Dan's a welder, and he supervises other welders. Well, if I were a good welder, I could humanly come in and help him to do that job better. As an administrator, maybe even now, I could say, Dan, as you administrate these guys, let me give you some pointers that might help you with that. He could do the same thing for me. Uh, Pastor, here's the way that I have to handle these guys at work. Maybe this is the way that you could kind of straighten out your deacons. So we can help each other on a human level, and I think that's important in Christianity. Would you all agree with that? It's really important to help each other that way. None of that is supernatural. Man, I hope you make a supernatural weld, Dan. See, that's not supernatural. Supernatural is 
that he can be filled with the knowledge of God's will in wisdom and spiritual understanding. See, if I really love him, I want what God wants for him. And so now this changes everything in the way that I pray. So how do I pray for my disciple? I pray joyfully, not critically, selfishly, or unthankfully. I pray biblically, not humanly. And everything changes. So here's the question. Do I have the mind of Christ? Do I have genuine biblical joy? Am I demonstrating this by praying biblically for my friends? Aren't those good questions for us this morning? This is the way that we need to head into the year. Lord, help me to have your love. Help me to have your mind. And that comes from this. We have to know God's Word. Then we just love each other. Man, we forgive one another. We, we remember with joy. Everything changes. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to be your people.